Okay, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I want to um, touch on uh, a number of things. Some of the some of the basic challenges that we that we live with, and and things that can uh, make or break us. And one of the concepts that I want to discuss is is this this word uh, ma'od, which means very. And interestingly, um, ma'od is is the same letters as the word adam, which means a human being. So in uh, in Hebrew, it's mem. Aleph Dalit, Ma'od, and in uh, but those are the same letters that spell Adam, Aleph Dalit Mem. So there's something, there's some connection between a person and this concept of very. And um, you know we all strive to to be more than we are, to be great, to reach our potentials. So so having this concept of a very. And, and, and seeing what the Torah says about it, I think is, 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 is meaningful and it's important. And um, I'd like to share with you a, an insight that I heard from Rabbi Beryl Wine that, that made a big impression on me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have so much admiration for him, not, not just because he, he has just such a, just a huge reservoir of knowledge uh, in, in the Torah and, and, and uh, secular academic knowledge as well, he, but but also because he he's been a, a pulpit rabbi for 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 decades and has a a real knowledge of the way people actually are. Because if you're like a pulpit rabbi of a, of a of a big congregation, then you sit down and you hear what people's uh, marriages are like and what their 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 conflicts are like and what their the uh, the issues are in terms of where their children are at, in terms of raising children, in terms of their the, the congregants' uh, business lives and everything like that. So you really see how people actually are. Um, you have a, a window into the, the, the personal lives of, of people. And then when you can sort of reconcile the, the nitty-gritty of, of where people actually are with what the Torah is saying on various issues, then if you can combine them and synthesize them, what you, what, you, what you have to say is, is very meaningful. So, so, so that's one of the reasons why I, I really uh, especially value and love uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, teachings. And, and he's got uh, an enormous catalog of uh, tapes online if you, if you want to um, look into them. Um, he's got a, an overview of uh, world history and Jewish history, which is phenomenal. He goes through Jewish history, but he goes through Jewish history in, uh, in connection with world history. So you can actually see what's going on in the world uh, while he's discussing various chapters in, in our own history. So he, it's really, it's, it's, I, I recommend all of it. It's, it's really wonderful. So anyway, here's a, a thought that I heard from him. He was talking about this concept of very. And he said, wherever you see very, there's usually, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing his words, but this was the essence of it. There's, there's usually uh, an issue. In other words, someone who's very pretty, someone who's very smart, someone who's very rich, whenever you have this concept of very, there's usually some baggage attached to it. That, that's, this is what he said. Now, I, I would like to, to tell you what these words mean to me and, and how I've experienced them in my, my own life and my own observations. You know, in terms of, 
Let's talk about looks. If someone is very good looking. You know, I, I've talked to and then read and things like that about, let's say, women who are very, very good looking. And a lot of times there's a, a great aspect of discomfort that goes with that. In other words, they, they feel as though they're being looked at or, or, or watched or whatever it is. And it's a, it's a very invasive sort of um, experience that's, that's not necessarily positive. And uh, in terms of someone who's very rich, a lot of times they, you know, they want to know, well, why are you being friends with me? What, do you want my money? Uh, what, and and that, that wealth, while we were sort of, well, listen, I'd love to be great looking, I'd, I'd love to be very rich and everything like that. At the same time, it can create a sense of distrust and, and distance. So, and now very smart. And I, I want to spend a, a little more time on very smart. Because I think, um, you know, my, my dad, who, who was a psychologist, Allah uh, Shalom, he should rest in peace. You know, he told me one time, he, he, did, he, he did a lot of different types of therapy. And, and a lot of, like, he did a lot of uh, educational testing as well. And he told me that there are people who are so smart that they can't take a test. Meaning to say that, um, let's say you've got a multiple choice kind of test where you ask a question and then, you know, there's A, B, C, D, different choices. Well, someone who's very smart, super smart, looks at A and says, I can make A right, and I can make B right, and I can make C right, and I can make D right. And then they're so smart, they get lost in their intelligence and they get a terrible grade. It's a, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon, but, but it's true. It's out there. Let me, um, let me develop this further. One of the great sages in the Gomorrah, actually he's one of the greatest, 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 greatest sages in the entire Gomorrah. Um, his name is Rabbi Meir. And Rabbi Meir, we have a, a foundation, a claw, Stam Mishnah Rebbe Meir. Meaning to say, now remember, the, the Mishnah is sort of the, the headquarters of the oral law. It's the heart of the Talmud, is the Mishnah. Okay, just, just so you know, the, 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 the Mishnah is a very terse explanation of the laws, and the Gomorrah explains the Mishnah. And when you've got the Gomorrah and the Mishnah are published together, that's called the Talmud. Okay? This is the oral law. This is what's coming to explain the, the five books and, and just how we're to enact what the, what the various mitzvahs are, the different commandments. So, you know, a lot of them are very vaguely expressed. And God gave us more instructions of how to actually do these things. So it comes down in the form of the Mishnah and the Gomorrah, the, the, the actual um, details of the observance, so, which is essential. And by the way, you know, when you look at uh, uh, Jewish Torah study over the last several thousand years, it's really been based on, on studying the Mishnah and the Gomorrah, the Talmud, much more so than the five books. Because the five books, you can get down, it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it's a book, it's not that thick. You can get that down fairly quickly, although we go over it every week, every day, all our lives. But the main, if you think of like who the great Jewish scholars are throughout history, you know, the bulk of their time far and away was spent learning the Gomorrah. 
You know, and that's a massive book. That took, I mean, the fact that it exists at all is such a testimony to who the Jewish people are. It took 500 years to write. Have you ever heard of anything that took 500 years to write? That's what the Gomorrah is. That's what the Talmud is. 500 years. And, of course, it was based on teachings that go back to Mount Sinai. So, if you learn the Gomorrah, the Talmud, they're used interchangeably, but, but I'm talking about the Talmud, which, again, is the, the published version of the Gomorrah explaining the Mishnah. That's what the Talmud is. If you learn one page a day, it'll take you seven years to get there. So that's, it's big. It's really big. Okay. So now, the Mishnah will give various opinions about uh, an observance. But it doesn't always tell you who says what. Often it does, but not always. So there's a lot of halacha. There's a lot of information that's given over in the Mishnah that doesn't have a name attached to it. So we have a foundation, which is if there's no name attached to it, if it's what we call a Stam Mishnah, just a Mishnah that's just stated outright without an author there that it's said by Rebbe Meir. So this is all just to give you a, an inkling of the greatness of who Rebbe Meir was. That a lot of the Mishnah was put down by Rebbe Meir. Now he didn't come up with it, but he was the vehicle through which it came down into written form. So this is... This is playing a central role in not just Jewish history, but really world history. Okay. Now listen to this. Here's the point. In terms of his own actual uh, halachic opinions, in other words, his psak, how he would personally decide the law, the other rabbis didn't hold by him. They did not go according to the opinion of Rebbe Meir. And you know why? Because they said, he's so great, He's such a super genius that he has the ability to say something that is pure is actually impure and make something that's impure actually pure. So phenomenal is his intelligence that we can't, in terms of the, the meat and potatoes aspect, can we do it, can we not do it, is it right, is it wrong? We don't go by Rebbe Mayer. So again, let's... Let's go back to this concept. You know, you, there is such a concept. Here, let me give you another example of this, a more contemporary example of this, just, just so we're communicating. The Briskarav lived about, you know, in the turn of the last century, like in the uh, early 1900s. That's kind of when he was around. And, you know, there are a lot of different styles that you can learn Torah. Like, for instance, you know, there's Hasidus, there's Musr, there's Pshat, there's Sod, there's all different styles. You, you want the, just the, the direct explanation, the more mystical explanation. There's, there's a lot of different styles in terms of Torah study. Now, the style that people learn the Talmud today, the analytic style, which is learned all over the world today, it's the style of the Briskarav. So, again, to give you a sense of his greatness and his influence on the Torah world, he has, everyone learns in his style. It's an amazing thing. Now, the Brisker Rabbi was so phenomenally intelligent. Now, every rabbi has to have a rabbi. Every person has to have a rabbi. 
Every rabbi has to have a rabbi, okay? So when he would have a, a, a question in, in what, what am I supposed to do in this instance, right? What is the halacha? What is the law on, in this instance? He had a rabbi. I'm forgetting his name right now. And I heard this actually from Rabbi Wine as well. And he instructed his rabbi, you can imagine who the Briska Rav's rabbi is, right? Must be someone super great, right? He in, instructed him, just tell me yes or no, don't tell me why. Just tell me if it's permitted or it's not permitted, don't give me the explanation. Why? Because he said, if you tell me I can do it, that it's permitted, and you tell me the reason, I'll tell you exactly for that reason why it's not permitted. And if you tell me I can't do it, that it's not permitted, and you tell me the reason, I'll tell you how exactly for that reason it is permitted. So just tell me yes or no. So, there's a lot of greatness in this story. And also, just Rabbi Meir and everything like that, that there is this, and what I was telling you about, multiple choice questions, right? There is a concept that a person actually, to use the, the um, modern expression, a person actually can be too smart for their own good. Meaning to say, you know, like uh, my grandfather had an expression, which was smart, smart, stupid. Which is that, that a person, you know, there's, there, there's such a category as smart person's mistakes, <laughs> that the only way you could make that mistake is if you actually are very intelligent and you thought through, and then you made the wrong decision. And a lot of, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. So, so, so the Torah tells us, God gives us the mitzvahs, God gives us the Torah, and he says, don't add and don't subtract. Don't add and don't subtract. This is what it is. And we have to be very careful in our, in our own life to balance two different instincts. One is, we have to delve deeply, we have to understand, and we have to challenge and question we have to, because that's the process of, of understanding. I heard from Gedalia Fleer a, a very fascinating distinction between the Hebrew language and the English language. And you see, excuse me. Well, <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe that sneeze will come later. But... Um, Languages are really interesting because different cultures have different languages and some cultures have words for things that other languages and other cultures don't have words for. So you see an expression of the national character, the essence of the people expressed in their language and, in the, and how they define certain terms. You know? Like, um, for instance, you know, it was once said to me that I, I'm sure I'm not a pronouncing this word correctly, but nonetheless, there's a word in German called um, uh, Scheidenfreund, which means taking uh, pleasure in another person's failure. Now, not to bash Germans, but that, it's amazing that the Germans have a word for that. <laughs> they, actually, they actually have a word for that. 
taking pleasure in another person's failure. You don't have, I mean, you have that concept, certainly, and especially in Hollywood, that's for sure. But, you know, you have that, you have that concept. But, but the only reason why a culture actually comes up with a single word for something is because it's used so often that you need a, a shorthand to express it. Okay? So, so again, I'm not... Uh, there, there are many interesting examples of that. That's just one example. So, so, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is that in English, to question, right, when you question something, one of the definitions of questioning something is to doubt. You know, because it's sort of like, I question that person's sincerity. Right? As opposed to, I have a question, when does the movie start? Right? But one of the sub-definitions in English to question is to doubt. Which means that there's a certain suspicion in questioning according to the English point of view. In other words, if you have to ask, then there's a, there's a little aspect of doubting that's in your heart that's motivating you to ask. In Hebrew, we don't have that. To question doesn't mean to doubt. In fact, you want to hear something even more wild? In Hebrew, in classic Hebrew, there is no word for doubt. Isn't that fascinating? Because the Torah is written by God. And the Torah is written from God's point of view. So, why would God, who exists, need a, a word for doubt? You, I'll give you another example of that, by the way. Idol worship, in Hebrew, is called avodah zorah. Avodah zorah, technically speaking, if you want to translate it literally, means strange worship. Because again, the Torah is written from God's point of view. From God's point of view, why are you bowing down to a rock? Why are you bowing down to a tree? That's, that's just weird. That's, that's strange worship. You, you got it? So you can see God's point of view in the language itself. Now, what I was saying is, when we question, that's, that's important. We need to question. We need to question, and there's no shame in questioning. Because it doesn't necessarily mean to doubt. It can mean to doubt, but it doesn't necessarily mean to doubt. In other words, there's no stigma to questioning. So, the Talmud, which we were talking about before, massive, massive, massive volumes, right? Learn again, a page a day, it takes you seven years to get through. The bulk of the Talmud is questions and attacks and counterattacks. Because that's who we are. We, we are not afraid. Listen, I heard this once. It made such an impression on me. If something is true, it only gets stronger from questioning it. See, people who are afraid of questions, sometimes they have something to hide. Because they're afraid that if you ask too many questions, it's going to weaken it. Now, also, we're humble enough to know that there's certain things we simply don't know. So, I don't know is a perfectly valid answer. You know? 
And if you don't know, you should say you don't know. In fact, it says in the Talmud that a person has to train their tongue to say, I don't know. Because so many people don't like to say that because then they, you know, they seem small before someone else, right? Oh, you don't know the answer, right? Yeah, I, I, no, I don't know the answer. I don't even know if the answer is noble. Go ahead. So is it wrong to question God? No, not at all. Not at all. Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. Here's what's wrong, though. Okay? Testing God. We're not allowed to test God. Now, what does that mean, testing God? And it's a very fascinating definition to this, okay? Testing God means that, you know what, God? There's certain things that I want, okay? And I'm not going to do what you want of me unless you give me what I want. See, God, I know Shabbos is very great. But you know what? Unless you give me this job or this husband or this blessing, I'm not going to do it. That's called testing God. That, that we're not allowed to do. That we're not allowed to do. Um, there's one exception, by the way, which is giving charity. That if you give charity, like real charity, and I guess meaningful charity, and you'd have to look more... Uh, look further into this teaching that I'm about to tell you. That's the one exception where you're told that you're allowed to test God. You know? To see if uh, something comes back, whether it's more money or, or, or whatever, whatever it is. I'm not sure. You have to look into the details of that. Okay? But, um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. You see, like, for instance, I'm commanded to put, as a man, I'm commanded to put tefillin on Every day. Okay? Except for Shabbos and holidays. But otherwise, I have a commandment to put on tefillin. Okay. Now let's say, let's say, um, something's going on in my life, and I say, God, I am, I'm, I'm gonna make a vow on myself to put on tefillin every day. The question is, is that a valid vow? Is that a kosher vow? And the answer is no. And the reason why it's not a kosher vow is because I've been commanded anyway to put on tefillin every day. So the idea that I'm taking this on, it's, it doesn't have a halachic validity as a vow. Like I, I swear to put on tefillin every day. I'm already commanded to put on tefillin every day. The, the reason why I'm telling you that is that to, to return to this idea of testing God. If I say, God, unless you give me X, I'm not keeping Shabbos. But I've already been commanded to keep Shabbos. So the idea that that's a chip on the table to be negotiated, it's not a chip on the table to be negotiated. Do, do you hear? So, so that's, that, 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 that's interesting. That's interesting. So, so we have to investigate. We have to investigate. And that's the whole learning process. And in terms of questioning God and things like that, you know, it says that one of the things that, that, um, that a teacher has to, uh, be able to be able to instill in a student is that a student shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. And that if the teacher... Uh, has a, um, 
a, a, a personality or an aura of um, impatience, then a student is afraid to ask questions. Because, because the student is afraid, oh, he's going to snap at me or he's going to yell at me or he doesn't have time for this question. Then they say a person who is that type of personality shouldn't be a teacher. Because it's really only through questions that we can grow. You know? I, I heard something very beautiful one time, which was that, uh, you know, there's kind of a classic uh, back and forth that happens in homes all over the world throughout the ages. And it goes like this. The parent is home and the child comes home from school and the parent says to the child, uh, uh, how is school today? Fine. What did you learn? Nothing. <laughs> right? That's, that, everyone has had that experience, right? So, bless you. So, so you say, uh, so someone told me that what they ask is, they say to their child, not what did you learn today, but what questions did you ask today? And that's, I think, a, a, a just fantastic because A, it validates and it positively reinforces asking questions, which is really the gateway of learning. I mean, for a teacher, really, a question has to be the most special thing in the world. That means that the person has heard what you've said, integrated it, and is now returning for the next step. That, that's what a question is. That's what a question is. So it's really, there's greatness to it. Um, you, know, you know, I'm reminded just of a, uh, a story from the, from the Talmud. And I'm forgetting his name. One of the sages had a student who is very, very slow, very slow. And the person had to say over the teaching, each teaching, I think, I, I mean, I really think it was 400 times, right, before he could move on to the next one. Now that's almost like superhuman, really almost like superhuman on both levels. A, that the, that the student was still sitting there at the end of that, but I guess the student was very sincere, but that there was such a patient person in this world that he was able to do this on an ongoing basis with this student. So the Talmud records uh, an incident where someone walked in and uh, during, the, during the lesson with this student and asked uh, a question like when the Rebbe was going to be available, like when the Rebbe was leaving, something like this. And uh, anyway, the Rebbe answered the question and then they went back to the lesson and he finished the 400th time and the student still didn't have it. And the student said, you know what, because you said that thing, I was afraid you were going to leave any moment. So I wasn't able to concentrate. Right? And then the Rebbe went and did it another 400 times. And it says, a voice came down from heaven and said, because you did this, you can choose. I want to give a gift. Either your entire generation is going to get long life, or you're going to get, I don't know whether it was wealth or something like this. And it's an awesome story. It's an awesome story. And there's a lot of reasons why I love it, but maybe the main thing that I love about it is that um, is that 
you see two people, or maybe, let's say two people, but one especially, changed the entire world. And they were sitting alone in a classroom, and they literally changed the entire world. Just through the conversation and the kindness and the Torah between them. And that was it. You know? Um, you know, the culture that we're living in right now, there's a cult of celebrity going on right now. And, and it seems on some level to be, um, on the most superficial level, like, wow, anyone at any time can be elevated to international recognition. Look how exciting. Look how great this is. And now it's more democratic than ever. Because it's not just movie stars. It can be someone from YouTube. Or it can be someone from any... It could be you. It could be you. And it sounds, in a weird way, I guess sort of positive, but I'm telling you, it's a complete... It's the opposite. It's almost criminal. It's almost criminal in its outlook. Because the real message is, unless you're featured in some way, you don't count for anything. That, that would, is what I read from it. And that's a more subtle reading of it. But I think that's what's going on. I think it's mamish the Yetzirah itself. It's the Yetzirah itself. You know? And this, this, this desire for fame... That uh, and you see that what's the reality of the world? It's 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 the opposite. You've got two people sitting in a classroom, and one incredibly patient person, and another person who desires to learn even though they're amazingly slow. And the patience that one person shows another person literally transforms the entire world. So. So when we know that, you don't have to be on the cover of People magazine when you know that. You know? And you don't have to be celebrated by anyone, by the way. It's nice. It's nice to be appreciated. But it's not, it's not the determining barometer of whether or not you're a success. It just isn't. You know? No, I'm, for some reason I'm reminded of one of the great dynasties in, in, in Hasidus is Rimenov. And uh, the, 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 the person who took over for, uh, his name was Menachem Mendel of Rimenov, and then his successor was Tzvi Hirsch. And Tzvi Hirsch was sort of the Gabai. He was the, the attendant to the Rebbe, and then he became the next Rebbe and became a very great Rebbe as well. But he would get up early, early in the morning and he would go to the shul and he would sweep the floors. And uh, the Rebbe, the Rimenover Rebbe said about him, you know, when he sweeps the floors, he's paving the way between heaven and earth. He's getting rid of all of the barriers between heaven and earth. So, you know, no one's going to put him on the cover of People magazine for sweeping the floor, believe me. And, but when someone sweeps the floor like he was sweeping the floor, 
and having whatever he had in mind while he was having it in mind, changing the entire world. So let me show you. We're going back now to what we were discussing. So let me just refresh your memory. We're discussing the concept of very. This idea of ma'od, very, which are the same letters as Adam, a human being. So very and a person. A person strives to be the most that they can. You know, it says in the Viahavta, Viahavta is Hashem Elokecha Bukholavcha Bukhom Nafshacha Ubukhom Meodecha. You should love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your meodecha. You hear the word ma'od in meodecha. It has the word ma'od in it. So that can mean uh, with all your strength or with all your money, right? Um, or maybe a more creative explanation is with all of your very, with all of your passion. Love God with all your passion, with all your very, right? So we were saying... That any time you see very in a person, very pretty, very rich, very smart, there's always a lot of baggage that comes with those blessings. As much as we all chase after these things and want these things, the, 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 the human reality is, is that there's a lot of baggage that comes with all of these things. And, uh, and so I want to show you where we see this actually in the Torah. Um, on the sixth day, after... After God creates the world, and if you look at the account of creation in, 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 in the beginning of Breshis, God says it was good. God made the world, and he said it was good. And that's, by the way, that's how we know this world is good. We think this world is good. This world is absolutely good. It's broken, by the way. It's on its way to being perfected. That's our job, to bring the world to its level of perfection. So the mitzvahs are, it's why we're here. We've got work to do. Okay. But at the same time, this world is good. And God is good. And each day, it says, God says, and it was good. Except, by the way, on Monday, the second day of creation. Because on the second day, God separated the upper waters from the lower waters. And God made separation. And because the separation is sort of connected with fighting, God doesn't use the word good on that day. And also, Gehenim, right? Our concept of Hell, which is not eternal, it's just sort of like a cleansing, passing through point. Like it says, there's earth, and then above earth is Gehenim, and then above Gehenim is Shemayim, is heaven. And all souls pass through Gehenim on the way to heaven. And it's kind of like your soul gets dry cleaned, right? God, if a person has a lot of stains, it's a lot of dry cleaning. <laughs> a person has... Almost nothing, you zip through. Tzaddikim, righteous people, zip through. Other people, it's longer, you know? But anyway, so because Gehenim was also uh, created on this day that the upper waters and the lower waters were separated, which is argument, separation, distance from each other, the word good is not mentioned on that day. But then the following day, it's mentioned twice. So you get, it's, it's, you get an extra good, it kind of makes up for it, Okay. Now, so at, on every single day, God says it's good. On the sixth day, something fascinating, God says it's tov ma'od. It's very good. Now, what's this very? 
because I told you we were going to see this concept in the Torah itself. So the Medrash says something unbelievable. Because the rabbis all queuing in, like they say, like, look, it says good, 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 very good. What's the very doing there? So they say, you know what very means? That that's where God created death. Pretty surprising, no? Very surprising. Very, very surprising. And I'll just share with you my understanding of what that means. You know what? When a person gets to that very stage, there's a little bit of death sometimes attached to that. You know? Because a lot of times it creates argumentation and it creates distance between people. You know? She's so pretty. She's too pretty to talk to. I can't even, I can't even be in the same room as her. He's so rich. You know what? He's so rich. That guy's probably so full of himself. Right? I can't even get near that guy. That person's so smart. I don't understand a word he says. I'm not going to talk to him. You know, so a lot of times, it's a strange thing, but that sometimes that very can create distance, a little taste of death. So what's the way out of it? Because don't we all want this veryness at the same time? Right? Right? Like, because again, the word for a person, Adam, and the, it's the same letters as Ma'od. We, it's, it's in us. We, we strive for it. So how do you get to the very without it being problematic? You hear the question. So does that mean I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't comb my hair before I leave my house? <laughs> or I shouldn't study for an exam? Or I shouldn't work hard at my job? I mean, what are you, what are you trying to tell me here? Trying to tell me to, to, to strive for mediocrity? Is that what the, the, the essence of this teaching is? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, so let me, you know, there's something, uh, a, a very strange, uh, very strange thing. I, I just really eat in kosher restaurants. So I haven't really experienced this much, a little bit, but, but I've seen pictures, okay? So I know this is true. A very strange uh, trend that's been around for, I guess, a generation at this point. I guess it was originally called Nouvelle Cuisine. And what they would do is give you a very large white plate. Very, very large white plate. And put a little piece of food in the middle of the plate. <laughs> and then put some sauce around it, right? Now to me, I look at that, I'm already hungry. <laughs> I already want to order like four more of those. You know what? Take, you see that piece in there? Give me like eight of those <laughs> and put them on there. That, that's my order, you know? Or at least give me a smaller plate, for goodness sakes. So, so context means everything. Context means everything. By the way, there's a very interesting insight that the rabbis say that, that there's a certain level of satisfaction that comes from seeing the food. And that's one of the reasons why we light candles. This was in the pre-electricity days. Why we light candles on Friday night. So that we can actually see our food. Because when we see the food, we enjoy it more. So there's a visual. In, in fact, in gourmet circles, it's called plating. That how you put the food on the plate. That that's a whole dimension to being a chef and, and being a host. Because the presentation often means so much. I tell you, just, I don't want to lose the thought, if I remember, 
just, just, just let me finish this idea. So, the idea is context. If you, so, so, so let me put it to you this way. Again, how can we make very work for us? Right? Because we all want to set goals and we all want to achieve a lot. But we, but, but how do we make very work for us and not make it a disadvantage? Okay? So, I'd like to share with you the following. And again, I heard this from Rabbi Wein in a different context, but I want to build on it and apply it here. You see, as a person's blessing increases in a certain area, let's talk about money for now. Let's say a person is getting more and more money. They're getting more and more success in their, in their field. Okay? So, so a person has to pray um, Rabbi Wein said in the name of Reb Tzadok Akon, that a person has to pray for larger vessels. You see, a lot of times, the reasons why people get destroyed by blessing, imagine if you have a field, you need rain to make the crops grow. But if you get too much rain, it can obliterate the crop. Like, because there's no vessels for that rain. You see, a lot of people like in, in Hollywood and in sports, you see it a lot. People who are not, or like they're kids and they're not emotionally that stable. You know, they haven't been around in the world that much. And all of a sudden they achieve something tremendous and all the, the attention comes down and the money comes in and their, their lives get destroyed by it. And we see that every day almost, uh, stories like that, because they don't have the vessels to hold the blessing. They don't, they don't have the, the, the infrastructure in terms of friends and family and, 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 and money managers and outlook on life and all these things. They don't have it. So they don't have the vessels to hold the blessing. So, so as one's blessing increases, one needs to pray for larger vessels. In other words, one has to improve upon and expand their vision for what to do with that increase. You understand? So, so if someone's got more money coming in, well, maybe I should set up a foundation. I've got millions now. I should be thinking more on an institutional basis. Not just, you know, because this guy now, instead of me giving him a dollar and him being happy, now he wants ten bucks or a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. Well, why shouldn't he be asking me, by the way, number one, but do I have a vision where that money should be going, or am I just saying no to that guy, because that seems too much to give him right now? But if I'm thinking in a more expansive way, wait, now I can do more. I can go beyond. I can take care of this guy, but I can think larger in terms of the gifts that I've been given. Should be, what, how can I make the world a better place? I'm actually in a position. I can hire, I can hire uh, a full-time person who can get the word out. We can set up a website. We can start doing research in this area. I can now do that. So in other words, that's an example of someone's, vision, someone's vessels expanding to hold the higher amount of content. So why did I tell you this Nouvelle Cuisine example? Because you've got to, that's like, that's a big plate for a small thing, right? So in other words, that's, the, the plate itself is the vision. That's the vessel. Expand your vision. And when you expand your vision, you'll be able to hold more in a healthy way, in a way that won't destroy you, right? 
You know, John Lennon, the singer, did something very interesting. He, when he got, I think it was when he got married. I'm not a Beatles historian. Um, at some point in his life, I think it was when he got married to Yoko Ono, he had this, uh, this uh, he knew that it was going to be covered by the world press. And he thought to himself, this is like a very interesting line of thought, thought to himself, the whole world, the, the, the world press is going to cover this event. And it's going to be, to use a Yiddish word, narishkeit. Nonsense. What, what do they need to read? I got married to so-and-so. It's, it's meaningless. It doesn't, it's not going to change the world for the better in any way. So he decided to have a bed-in for world peace. So he lied in bed with his wife. And he had all the press that were going to come to cover this event. And he used it as an opportunity to preach world peace. And that was all the, all the headlines. He leveraged that attention that was coming in his way to, to positive ends. A, a really a, quite a brilliant manipulation or use of, of what's coming. You know, I'll give you another example, a modern day example, which is fascinating, actually. Ron Artest, who is a, a, a player on the Lakers, has changed his name to Meta World Peace. And it says it on his jersey. And I heard announcers talking. They've taken it seriously. And it said, well, you know, the uh, ball's been inbounded to world peace. Who, who passes it to Kobe Bryant? He knows his name is going to be mentioned all the time. So he decided to change it to world peace. I haven't discussed it with him. I don't know officially why he did that. But i got to think that he figures, look, if they're going to be saying my name all the time, let's, let's use it for something good. And that's an amazing, it's an amazing example of someone using their fame, widening their vision, increasing their vessels, in order to use it for something good. So again, to me, this is the solution to the very problem. This is the solution to the very problem. Where, where increase and blessing that comes to a person doesn't backfire against the person. Right? So, so, and now, again, to return back to the point of being, someone being too smart for their own good. You see, when all is said and done, God is the master of the universe. God is infinite. And even though he gives us a soul, which is a piece of him, we're finite compared to God. That's what it is. God's running the show. The best example, the clearest example, although this doesn't need a lot of proofs, Hashem asks Adam, the first person, to name all the animals. And then the Medrash adds one extra bit of information to that account, which is in the Torah. The Medrash adds that God then turns, after Adam names all the animals, God turns to Adam and says, and what's my name? And Adam says, Adoni, my master, my master. 
So the fact that God is our master is clear, or certainly, if you think about it, should be clear. We are commanded to do things. We, we simply are. We're, we, we are commanded to do things. We are here to accomplish something. And, and so, a person should, should not be too smart for their own good and think that, well, what I'm here is really up to me and I should decide. And does, when it says don't eat pork, does that really mean don't eat pork or don't eat a lot of pork or don't eat that kind or don't eat pork from that place? Or, it means don't eat pork. If you're Jewish, if you're not Jewish, you can eat pork. No problem with eating pork if you're not Jewish. But there's no, you don't have to be too smart. If it says don't eat pork, that's actually what it means. It's not some cryptic, Kabbalistic code word for don't do, don't go to a Dodger game. That's not what it means. You see that pork over there? Don't eat it. That's what it means. It's actually what it means. You see, there's no shame in the fact that we're a created creature. There's no shame to that. There's no shame that God has actual expectations for us. There's no shame to that. And let me just conclude with the following thing. And I actually heard this idea for the first time from Rabbi Aaron, David Aaron from Israelite. And I'm just kind of putting in my own words and kind of, kind of working with this idea. You see, and again, these were in his words, these are my words, but let's say you go up to someone and you say, do you believe in God? And let's say they say they don't believe in God. Or they say they don't know. And they say, well, do you, what's your religion? And the person goes, well, you know, I was born into this, but really I don't really have a religion. Okay. That's a lot of people. That's describing a lot of people in the world. And you say to them, let me ask you something. Would you go up to a homeless person on the street and kick him in the head? And the person will say, well, no, I wouldn't do that. And you say, well, why wouldn't you do that? Well, because it's wrong. Oh, so you believe in right and wrong. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, because that's wrong. That's a bad thing to do. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so, you see, that's, that's a very significant point. We could have really started the whole talk with this point, by the way. It's a very significant point. Everyone, if you talk to them, believes in right and wrong. Even if their system of right and wrong is completely wacky. The Nazis thought they were doing a great thing. Let's exterminate all the Jews. It's a cancer on humanity. What a blessing. We're doing something great. Okay, it's completely evil and wrong and horrendous. But in their purview, in their point of view, they were doing something good. So again, even among the most wicked, you have a concept of right and wrong and good and bad. It's just upside down, but they have good and bad, right and wrong. So what's the point? The point is, is that every single person has a religion. Every single person has a religion. It's just that they're making it up themselves. So you go up to someone, so, so you start asking them questions. Now, well, is this right? Is that right? Well, I don't know. I never thought about it. It's just there's no coherence to it. They have a religion. Every person has a religion. It's just there's no coherence to it. Because they haven't thought it through. So let me ask you something. 
If you're going to come up with your own religion anyway, and you're going to, because everyone's got one, why not take the Torah? Take the Torah, because I guarantee you it's better than what you're going to come up with. I guarantee you it's better than what you're going to come up with. I guarantee you. Why wouldn't I want the wisdom of the ages? Why wouldn't I want that? And I'm going to exchange that for my cockamamie, off-the-cuff, unthought-through system? And I'm going to stake my soul on that? I mean, anyone who considers these questions, if you say yes, then you've got either, you're, you're either being too smart for your own good, or you've got a serious arrogance thing going on, or you've got to ask a lot of questions because you're, you're not thinking clearly, I promise you. So, so let's just end with that. Let's just end with that. And if you think about it, if you look at the world, the world is a massive, massive, beautifully choreographed dance. The universe is this unbelievable choreographed dance. And every single person is playing a role. Why why, do, why don't I want to play my role? I want to play my role. I want to play my role. And as you can see, even if my role is something that's seemingly not in the spotlight, didn't we just say two people learning together, alone, in a classroom, change the entire world? So who's to say? Who's to say that my thing, even if it's not being celebrated by the, by the media, by the internet, isn't playing an absolutely crucial redeeming role in the scheme of everything. I want my role. I don't want to make up something. I don't want to make up something. I just want to be who God created me to be. Okay, have a great week.